0: Well, welcome back. Uh, we are trucking through the book of 1 John together. It's a letter that uh, the apostle wrote um, to the church at large, really, uh, to encourage them uh, to a deeper walk with Jesus. And um, it's been a great journey so far. It's, it, it doesn't read or teach like a linear kind of path. It's more of a spiral. And these themes of uh, community and uh, um, Community and just love and grace. He's he's spiraling us deeper into ourselves and seeing really the impact of a deep relationship with God. And so that's we're going to continue going today. But but he kind of hits he kind of hits pause to encourage us as the church today. And so we're just going to be looking at three short verses. If you want to go ahead and flip to them in First John uh, chapter two, verses twelve through fourteen. But as you as you kind of get settled there and, and ready to to dive into God's word, I want to share a, a story with you. Uh, on January 10th, 1999, the, the Arizona Daily Sun ran a story about a retired school teacher. Um, and one day, she had her students take out two sheets of paper, and then she had them write all of the students' names in her, in her class on each of those two sheets. And then she encouraged her students to take a few minutes and write, um, write one encouraging thing about each person. That was a Friday. That, that weekend, she took all of those sheets home with all of her students' names and all of those encouraging words on them. And she she compiled a list for each student about the encouraging things that their classmates had said about them. And then she dispersed them when they reconvened on Monday at school. And before long, when they received them, she, she gave them a moment to read them. Uh, she she kind of looked around, and everyone was smiling. And And one kid said, really? I never knew that, that I meant anything to anyone. I didn't know they liked me that much. And the, the sentiment was, was common around the room. Well, years later, this school teacher uh, went to the funeral of one of her former students who had been killed in the Vietnam War. Uh, and many who had been in her class were there at the funeral. It was a, it was a smaller town. And uh, after the service, the young man who was, who was killed in the war came to speak to the teacher and uh, the father said this, he said, I want to I show you something to the teacher. And um, he, he opened his wallet and he, and he pulled out a piece of paper and he said, Mark was carrying this when he was killed at war. Thank you so much for doing that. As you can see, Mark treasured it, the father said a group of Mark's classmates who were there at the funeral as well overheard the exchange, and and one smiled kind of sheepishly and said, I still have my list. It's in the top desk drawer at my house. Another said, I have mine too. It's in my diary. Another said, I put mine in my wedding album. And a third said, I bet we all saved them. Here's mine right here. I carry it with me everywhere. At that point, the teacher sat down, and, and she began to weep. And that was an assignment that every student had in her classroom until she retired. Now, I share that with you because there is a power in encouragement that is unlike any other thing. One of my favorite pastors is, uh, is, a, is an old Scottish pastor by the name of John Watson. And one of the quotes that, that he has in a, in a work that he wrote was this, Be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. You see... John, the apostle, has been saying some difficult things to us. He's been making us look inside. Really been making us test the weight of the faith that we explain to others that we have. The the, the faith that we attest to, he's been making us test that. And it's convicting. But first and foremost, John's a pastor. And we need a pastor in our lives, don't we? We need someone to encourage us when we get so discouraged with our walk with the Lord. So at this juncture in his letter, he hits pause And he wants to remind you, Christian, of the trajectory that you're on in the faith. That there are different seasons of growth and maturity for every Christian. And a healthy church is a church filled with people that are at all of those junctures. Whether you're a a babe in Christ and you're, you're learning the foundational truths of the gospel. Or whether you're battling the enemy with those truths that you've treasured all of your life. Or whether... You're kind of at the tail end of the faith and you're a father or mother of the faith and you look back and you see the faithfulness of your God throughout your life and you encourage others with your experience. I don't know where you're at today, but I can bet you're probably in one of those spaces. And God's Word has beautiful, heartwarming, encouraging instructions for how we're to live out of those seasons that we're in. Here's our big idea for the day. Grace grows mature and equipped disciples. Jesus has us all on a journey, and it's a journey of deeper and further dependence. So let's read 1 John chapter 2 verses 12 through 14, together. Here's what John says. He says, "I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. I'm writing to you fathers Have you you ever wondered what Christian maturity looks like, church? I I have. And a lot of the times when I think of what Christian maturity looks like without being uh, informed by God's Word, I'm off. A lot of times I think Christian maturity uh, means that you have a lot of knowledge about God's Word. You can just recall things very quickly. A lot of times I think, Christian maturity means that you have upfront leadership gifts and you readily use those. You're you're always ready to be in the light with the gospel. But John's ideas of maturity are different. John's ideas of maturity really have more to do with what you do with the grace of God and what it produces in and through your life. I had this guy come up to me, this is probably 12 years ago when I lived in Indiana, and he, he, he said to me, uh, over a, a dinner time conversation, you know, he asked me the question, What do you think maturity means? What do you think it means to, as the writer of Hebrews says, move from milk to meat? And his observation of this is that you have to get past the gospel. That, that you have to get past, I'm forgiven, Jesus is good, he gives me grace and mercy. You have to get past that. And, and as I heard that, my heart kind of grieved. Because I can't imagine God saving us from ourselves and then turning us back to depend on ourselves. So maturity must mean something different than that. Maturity it means that the grace of God informs and directs us to further and deeper dependence and obedience, linked and tethered to him in an abiding relationship the entire time. And this is where John he, he speaks about what, what I interpret as three kind of different spiritual seasons of God's grace in our lives. He's, he's not talking about physical children and physical young men and physical fathers. He's speaking about seasons of Christian development and maturity in life. And these are not intended to be gender-specific qualifiers for men only, but they are signs and signals of maturity for all believers. You'll notice that the style of his writing in these three verses includes a repetition of each group. And what he's doing is he's hooking us back into something that he wrote, likely in his first letter, the Gospel of John, that he wrote to the church. He's, he's, some, some of the statements are past tense, others are present tense. And he's expanding on those ideas, and indicate, which indicates to us that those ideas that he shared with us, likely in the Gospel of John, still stand true as he writes to encourage the truth, uh, to, to incl- encourage the believers in the truth some years later. John is linking what he is writing into the church now from the past. So, I don't want to drill down uh, on, the, on the different tenses of what he's saying because I think we'll, we'll, we'll miss the meat of the matter that he has for us today. So, I'm simply going to structure this sermon into looking at these three seasons that he looks at and, and putting those two couplets together as we look at them. So, so the, the outline of where we'll be going today is first, we'll look at what he describes as children in the faith. I've called this foundational grace. Not grace that you move on from, but grace that sets a foundation for a building, the building of your life. The, the second thing we'll look at is the young men. And the, the, the way that he describes the young men's um, influence of grace in their life is that it's a grace that battles, it's a battle grace, one that, that, uh, that, that overcomes the evil one. And lastly, we'll look at how he describes the, the fathers and mothers of the church this idea of, of a long grace, a grace that looks back and sees God's faithfulness from the beginning. And we've called that eternal grace. So that's where we're going today. Let's, let's dig in together to this foundational grace, grace as we see what he says about children. 1 John chapter 2, verses 12, and then also verse 13. He says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I write to you, children, because you know God. The Father. So here's what he's saying about this foundational grace. When you first become a Christian, meaning you, you, you surrender your life to the grace of God, you admit that you're a sinner, you, you profess faith in Jesus, that his righteousness is the only righteousness you'll ever be able to have, and that his, his way and his salvation is the only way you'll ever be one with God. Would you say that he's saying that you're setting a foundation? And the way I see this is that grace kind of starts out in our lives as a defense for the wrath of God that is sitting over our lives because of our sin until Jesus meets us and speaks for us. It's a defense. It's, a, it's, a, it's an opportunity to be forgiven and to be righteous before God. And as you mature, you, you also see that it becomes your offense for the spiritual warfare that you are in as his followers. Um. Uh, The beginning of any Christian's journey is to know the Father through the forgiveness of sins in Jesus. This is the baseline foundation for the Christian walk. Our Father in heaven has intense concern for my progress and your progress in the gospel, for our maturity. That's why Paul writes in Philippians 1, 6 that that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Our Father cares about that. We have a father, a good, good father, who loves us and cares for us in every juncture of the pilgrimage, especially the initial one. So, you know, when you think about him as father, we all come to God with a picture of what that fatherhood looks like. And, and the role of the scripture is to retrain our minds and our hearts and conform us to the Bible's idea of God being our father. I don't care how good your relationship with your earthly father is on this earth there is still some area of brokenness that you are going to be tempted by by no intention of your own to carry into the way you relate to your Father in heaven. And and God wants to reset that whole thing as we think about his foundational grace for our lives. In fact, this is why when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray in Matthew chapter 6, how does he teach them to begin to pray? He says, and when you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He, he says, You need to pray beginning with the fact that you have a Father in heaven. You don't have a taskmaster in heaven. You don't have a, a, a vengeance oriented, wrath filled Father. You've got a loving Father, Abba Father, a caring Father, a tender Father in heaven. And John says, This is what you need to be thinking about. This is the foundation of your grace. That you, that, you, that you build your life on. And so, you know, some of us at New City Church are children in the faith. Some of us are literal children and literal children in the faith. We're just beginning to navigate the grace of God in such a way that it informs our heart and our mind, and we base our lives on it. Others of us are adults, and we're, we're, we're kind of in this category of children in the faith because, because we're, we're still just kind of tethered to Jesus and depending on others to feed us God's Word. We're mere babes in Christ. Now, I just want to unpack that for a second because I think, I think there's, a, there's a tendency uh, to, to either stay in that season too long because of fear or to try to get out of that season too quick. And both of those extremes uh, can be catastrophic for the foundational grace that God wants to give you. So if you've got a Bible, flip it over to Hebrews chapter 5 with us this morning. And I want to talk about that tension that we have there. The writer of Hebrews uh, talks about this idea of maturity. And, and the way that he describes it is, is to think about a, a child that's moving from milk to meat, to more substantive uh, food, nourishment. So here's what he says in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12. And we'll go through uh, chapter 6, verse 1. He says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, in other words, y- you've had enough foundation in your life, you ought to be giving it away to others. You still need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You still need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. And since he's a child, but solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. So he's saying, hey, there's this group of people in the church that have been Christians long enough, and people have discipled them enough that they should be living sacrificially for the kingdom, but they're still stuck in consumer mode. Instead of looking at the church and saying, how can I pour out my life for the sake of the gospel and the benefit of the world? They say, what can you do for me, church? He's saying there's, there's, there's a season where this is okay, but there's a tendency to stay in that season for too long. And, and so what he writes and says is they actually need to go back to the beginning because there's been a formation failure in how they've understood this foundational grace. That somewhere in their journey there was a formation failure, a grace that led to a me-centered spirituality instead of a a life of deep sacrificial love of God and love of neighbor. And let let me say it like this, you know with me there's always two ditches and the Christian journey is about the Holy Spirit keeping us between those two ditches. The first ditch I think is this, is staying on the bottle too long or prolonged adolescence in the gospel. So this means that you've been around God's people and his church for a long time, and you're still stuck depending on others to feed you the word. You're, you're kinda like a newborn. Now, if you've ever had a newborn before, some of you have had newborns this week, congratulations by the way, but if you've ever had a newborn before, you know how this works. When you have a newborn in the house, you do everything perfectly, you tiptoe out of the room after you lay them down quietly or singing lullabies to them for an hour or so, you tiptoe out of the room, careful not to slam the door. You get to your bed, uh, you know, and you, you're, the moment that your eyelids close, there comes a wail of a thousand decibels, crying for someone to come and care for the needs of that newborn. And the baby isn't going to stop until you do something about it. You know this. Now, the good thing is, is that most of our children don't do that their entire lives. Maybe some of them do. We can talk about that in another sermon. But a new Christian is like this for a season. Um, in fact, the longer I've been on the pilgrimage myself, I would say I've come to enjoy the early days, moments, months, and years of the new Christian's journey because there's such an awareness of who God is and a hunger for who He has become. And so it's great to have new Christians in your life. But, you know, everything's so new and exciting. But the writer says if we stay on milk too long, there's going to be some things that we struggle with. The first thing he says is this, that you're going to be unskilled in, in righteousness. This means this, that, that uh, you're not able to properly apply God's word to the behaviors that you're exhibiting in your life. That, that somehow there's this disconnect between what God says and how that's supposed to transform your life. So, so your, your life doesn't seem to be conforming to the image of God because you're dependent on others to feed you. You're depending on others to lead you. There's no, there's no self-leadership in the Holy Spirit for yourselves. And I would say this, everyone, I don't want you to be too ex- discouraged about this, but everyone has been here or will be here in their Christian walk, and that's okay. That's why we have a community around us that helps spur us on to new obedience. The, the second thing he says is this, is that you're unable to discern good and evil. So, you know, there's this discernment that maturity brings the longer that you walk with God and His people. And really, the, the way that I think about it is, is this. You know, you walk with wise Jesus and wise Christians, and you uh, inadvertently start to become wise. It's by really no doing of your own, but the Spirit just starts to change you as you as you walk with Jesus. and And you're not getting tangled up in the same traps that used to consume you, or if you are, you're turning from them and walking in the light more quickly. You're able to discern good from evil a little quicker than you used to. You're maturing. He says that the, the, the third indicator that uh, you've not moved on from uh, from milk is this, is that you're not able to disciple others. So I think this is, this is the most key and clear uh, distinction that he makes here. Basically he's saying, Have you multiplied your life? Is your life investing into others like Jesus encouraged you to, and not only encouraged, but actually commanded you to do, to give your life away, to go and make disciples, all nations? And so the goal is that we would get the grace of God deep enough in our own souls so that we could feed others the word of God with our lives and disciple others. Here's the deal. Some of us can't ever imagine doing that. And that's good because you're thinking about doing it on your own. But with the power of the Spirit, the Spirit is always hungry to pour out His Word to the world. Because He promises that it won't return void. And so if you're hung up and you're never giving the Word of God, the grace of God away to those around you, the writer of Hebrews says you're probably still on milk. So what would it look like for you to enter into a community that would spur you on to live on mission and give the gospel away to the world. Because the, la- the, the, the thing that the enemy wants for us most is that we would become spiritually obese babies. How's that for a picture? Spiritually obese babies. Babies that are so filled up with milk that they're just sick. They're just napping in the faith. God's designed for us is that our lives would multiply and that we would give ourselves away for the sake of the gospel. <clears throat> the second ditch is this. So the, the first ditch is prolonged adolescence, staying on the milk too long. The second ditch is this. It is trying to eat steak without teeth. So this is a, this is a forced maturity. So th- this ditch is more subtle. This is when a new Christian comes along Uh, in the life of the church, and they've got this charisma. They seem to be solid, and we thrust them into leadership positions without testing them. I can't tell you how many times I've seen this happen, and I can't tell you how many times this has gone wrong. And what happens when we thrust these new believers into these key leadership positions is, is there is a fallout because they're still building foundational grace. The Holy Spirit's still building them. And there's this wake of people and collateral damage that get hurt because we force them to eat steak too quick. There is a season in our Christian walk to be nourished, to be fed, to sit at Jesus' feet with others, to drink deeply of God's word, and to just be poured into, right? There's a season for that. And I pray that that we would be an obedient enough church where we wouldn't thrust new believers and make them be more mature than they are because the mature, the more mature believers in our church are serving and there's no vacuum in leadership there. This is frankly why in New City, anytime that we talk about discipleship groups and missional communities, we just say, listen, I'm, I'm glad that you've been a part of a group before if someone wants to be in leadership. But we just would ask you to come and sit for a season, to sit at the feet of Jesus, to sit with a group of people, get the culture of who we are. And, 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 this, and this opportunity once sees if you're a teachable and humble person, but also uh, gives us an opportunity as a community to make sure that you are, are called into leadership in our community. So we've done this from day one and we plan to continue to do this. Now, the beauty of laying a solid foundational grace in new believers is that it reminds us of the thing we need to be reminded of over and over and over and over over again. And it's this, grace is a gift. And that gift of grace transforms you. You'll never do eternal ministry without God's grace empowering it. That's the only way to do eternal work in the kingdom of God. And we got to come back to it over and over and over again. So that the first form of grace that he talks about for the children is this foundational grace. This is, the second thing is this. It's battle grace. So John takes us farther to talk about the next juncture of spiritual maturity in the life of a new believer. It's when God's grace becomes a sword that we wield in our battle against the enemy in spiritual warfare. Since... Since we know that we're secure in Jesus through his foundational grace, he's never going to leave us or forsake us, we also begin to see that we are victorious in this battle of sanctification in the kingdom of God, that, that God's word is not only our defense, but it's also our offense. And we see Jesus doing this when he's tempted by the enemy as he begins his ministry. John writes about it, First John chapter 2. He says, I'm writing to you young men, young women, because you have overcome the evil one, our enemy, the devil himself, and I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So a man or woman who has gone from milk to meat in their spiritual journey is someone who not only understands the power of God's word, but also has an abiding and inner experience of God's word uh, destroying strongholds in their life and using it as a weapon against the enemy that seeks to destroy us. What makes a spiritual young man or woman strong? John says this, it's, it's that God's word abides in them, meaning that there's, this, there's kind of this dialogue around God's word. It's informing us and it's going through us as we seek to live faithfully before him. It's not just stopping with us, but it's the power for life. It's, 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 the, it's the currency of, of how we live vibrantly in the kingdom. A spiritual young man or woman is a person who opens the word of God, expecting to lay hold of God, only to find that God has laid hold of them through the word. The pers- this person in this season can describe their walk with God as struggle. Struggle. Did you hear that? Let me say it again. The person who is in this season can describe their walk with God as struggle. We don't typically think about struggle being a good thing. But that's the picture John gives us, isn't it? He's saying, listen, you're going to struggle against the evil and the enemy. You're going to struggle with temptation. You're going to struggle with doubt. But you, because you abide in God's word, it is fighting on your behalf is what he's saying here. The struggle is evidence of growth. It is evidence of the battle. And any believer that, uh, that fights a battle fights with, in a faith that is ultimately victorious. And Paul writes about this type of grace in Ephesians chapter 6. You know, we think about the struggles we have in life as we follow God as his people. And, and we think that here's the battle. I've got to struggle to stay on the straight and narrow path. That if I could just keep my life between the ditches, that I'd be in good shape. Well, that's not the picture that Paul gives us in Ephesians 6 about our responsibility. Did you know that? He doesn't say, go slay your Goliaths. He, he doesn't say, you know, you know, go and do all of these things. He says one thing that we're called to do. Stand. One thing. L- listen to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. I want you to notice what he calls us to do and then what he does on our behalf. Young men or young women, listen to this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. He's echoing what John's uh, written in 1 John 2. And you do this by putting on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood In other words, your primary battle is not by those that you see, but rather against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And because of this, because that's our battle, and we're called to stand, here's what it looks like. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, what are you called to do? To stand firm. Stand therefore, and as, your, as shoes for your feet, having, or having fastened on the belt of the truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Christian, the the battle of the young man or the young woman is a battle to abide in the Word. It's not to knife fight the devil with your sheer willpower, your get-or-done nature, but it is rather to stand in an abiding dynamic relationship with God through his word, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Paul says, you want to be strong? You want to be an overcomer? You want to to make it to the end? Stand on God's word. And what it becomes is every possible defense that you or I could ever possibly imagine. His righteousness fighting on behalf of us. His his truth extinguishing the lies that the enemy tries to feed to our minds. He sets us on mission to spread this Word, giving the Gospel peace as our shoes. But because Jesus is overcome, we're abiding in Him. It means that we stand in His Word. And in His Word, He's all of these things to us. He's our sword, He's our shield, He's our helmet, He's our breastplate. He's our belt, he's our shoes. So church, may we renounce the shortcuts of maturity in Jesus. Some of us are trying to get a microwaved maturity with Jesus. And the problem with that is that that's not how God works. It's not about 10 quick steps to maturity. You know, a microwave TV dinner kind of faith. Because you know what? The, The joy that you have in the gospel is gonna taste like that TV dinner but it's about this experiential standing on God's word through the suffering and struggle of life that matures you as you see that you are more than conquerors through him who loved you, as Romans 8 says. Church, you're more than conquerors because you've learned to stand on and in the truth of who God is. You see that he's fighting for you, just like we sang today. The recipe for the maturing Christian is this. It's it's abiding in God's word, abiding in God's spirit, and abiding among God's people. That, That those three things collectively in your life equal strength in the Lord, which is a maturing faith. So not only do we have this foundational faith in the gospel that is kind of entry point of maturity, the second one is the struggle that you experience in the faith. And it won't take too long to see the struggle. The the, the third kind of season that John talks about is is the fathers and mothers of the faith. And I've called this one eternal grace because of the way that John describes it. Here's what he says in 1 John 2, 13 and 14. He says, I'm writing to you fathers or mothers because you know him who is from the beginning. And then he says it again, basically the same thing. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. Let me just say this kind of just straight out of the gate here. Uh, Americans tend to have a horrible culture of honor, especially for those that are further along in the, maybe even in the faith or in age than us. Uh, those that are older in years or frankly older in faith are most often trampled on uh, or by... D- trampled on by dismissive comments, you know, you're kind of outdated or you don't really understand what it's like to to live in these times. And and I can imagine that that temptation would go back uh, since the history of the world. But John says there is something that older Christians contribute to the life of the church that cannot be reproduced in any other way. That there's something that has happened in their walk with God, the, the way that they've experienced the foundational grace, the struggles of life, that battle grace that has seasoned them. That We we don't only need their uh, words of wisdom, but we need their experience in our lives. And this is why John says that after you know all those years of following Jesus, wrestling with God, experiencing trials and suffering, they've been able to see the faithfulness of God through it all. This is why he says, Fathers, I write to you who have known him from the beginning. That you're able to, to see your life not just in the moment right here, or not just when you became a believer, but you're able to see the whole picture, the kind of the panoramic shot of God's faithfulness to His people over time. And there's, there is, um, there is a, a substantial nature to that that the church needs. We, we need the sturdiness of that long view of God's faithfulness to us. Now, They may not, the the, the fathers and mothers of the church, they might not even be that old. But there's a seasoning that comes through their life that has been taught and learned and studied, but also experienced in the battle. It's not that they don't struggle with sin, but they've been around long enough, they've been following Jesus long enough to know that we are finally and fully redeemed in Him, and He'll finish the work that He started. And so to the younger Christians that the fathers and mothers share life with, They're able to come alongside them and not say, hey, Sonny, let me show you how to do this, but to empathize, remembering the struggle and seeing the faithfulness of God. Now, sadly, in our culture, most people that fit into this category of fathers and mothers of the faith are less engaged in the church than ever. Or they're, they're only engaged with their own age group, their own stage and age of life, sharing community with them. And my question to you fathers and mothers of the faith at New City Church is this, what would it look like in our community for you to engage more deeply? What, what would it look like to firmly embed yourselves and plant yourselves among God's people in our midst? Because the Apostle Paul gives an unbelievable vision for intergenerational discipleship that I want to lay before you this morning. And it's a letter that he wrote to Titus, his kind of protege in the faith, his son, one of his sons in the faith. And he left Titus as an elder on the island of Crete to help put together and order a church among a wild people on the island of Crete. Here's what he writes to them and and what discipleship is supposed to look like. He says, uh, Titus chapter 2, verse 1, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine, Titus. And here's what sound doctrine looks like, he says. Older men or fathers and mothers in the faith are to to be sober-minded. Otherwise, they they think of themselves in an adequate uh, and humble way. They're dignified. They live a life worthy of respect. They're they're self-controlled. They're sound in faith and in love and in steadfastness. They're not easily shaken. He says older women are mothers in the church. They're likewise to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. That's powerful language. But they are to teach what is good. And so be able to train young women to love their husbands and children. To be also self-controlled, pure, working in the home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. That's, that's a key phrase. Not to just any man, but to their own husbands. That the word of God may not be reviled. In other words, that's his design. Likewise, urge back to the fathers here. Urge the younger men to be self-controlled. And show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Did you notice that the instruction for the fathers and mothers of the faith in the church in Crete was really about the gospel's influence, not only in the church, but out of the church? That, in other words, the outsiders would be able to see what's happening among us, and they'd scratch their heads and say, how is that possible? How is that possible that those two groups of people are able to live in community together with mutual love and respect for the season that they're in? That's a, that's a work of the gospel. That's not a work of, you know, affinity groups just hanging out with people that you got everything in common with. That, that requires no work of the Holy Spirit to just spend time with people that are like you. And we miss so much of what God has for us When we just choose to coast through life. And, um, you know, some of these issues were very specific to the church in Crete, but others of them are, are a great picture and vision for who we could become as a church. And, you know, the church needs your season of life that you're in, not just your Bible knowledge, not just your best practices and tips, but they need your struggle. It's it's not that younger Christians just need someone to do all the stuff and have all the answers, but they need your life. And why do they need your life? Because your joy is a testimony that the gospel is good news that can carry us to the end. That you've endured it all, you've seen it all, and you're still clinging to the one who fills you with joy. Those of you that have entered this season, maybe you're physically retired, maybe you're not. But let me just say this. Please don't retire from making disciples. Please, for the sake of the global kingdom of God, until Jesus returns, do not retire from making disciples. One of my heroes in the faith is a a Methodist pastor who lives in Wilmore, Kentucky, on Asbury Theological Seminary's campus, or just outside of it. And his name is Dr. Robert Coleman. He's written the most formative book on how Megan and I and our church views what discipleship is. It's called The Master Plan of Evangelism. And uh, Dr. Coleman has been in the season of spiritual father for about 50 years now. He's 92. And do you know what Dr. Coleman's life looks like week in and week out? He has two groups of young men that he fights for the faith with. And he's been doing this his entire life. You know what discipleship is? It's it's not this destination. It's this journey that God has us on of doing the same old thing with new people until Jesus returns, until all have heard and all have seen Jesus because we need the full spectrum of the kingdom of God and the seasons that God has called us into. So what would it look like For the fathers and mothers of New City Church to lean into these younger generations of believers. Well, the first thing you would have to do is get over your own insecurities. Whether you think they need you in their life or not, they do. And younger believers in the church, you're going to have to open up to intergenerational discipleship. Because you might not parent like they did, it doesn't mean anything. There's still something that God has done in and through their journey with Jesus that the church desperately needs. What would it look like for you to be in a relationship spiritually with someone 30 or 40 years older or younger than you? Can your faith handle that kind of diversity? Because that's God's design for us. And here's the beauty of this whole thing that we've said today. God has providentially brought you into our community at this season of time and in this season of your life to mature you. That's what I have to believe when I read the Bible. And it's grace that changes us. And grace has one mission. It's to transform the world by transforming disciples who make disciples. So no matter where you're at on this spectrum, you have something to offer the church. So may we be a people who faithfully and eagerly seek for God to use us, to finish us, and to humble us as we make disciples. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you uh, for the high call of being called your children, Lord, and the responsibility that comes with it that we get to be babes in the gospel to learn your ways under kind and gentle leadership of disciples of Jesus who pour into us. I'm I'm thankful for the young men and young women in the gospel now who struggle, struggle hard to see the light. And they keep dragging their junk back into the light, trusting that you'll transform them in community. And I'm thankful for the fathers and mothers of the faith that are in our community that we so desperately need to not retire from making disciples. So Jesus, would you meet us in that? And would you transform this city by grace? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.